All right, everybody, welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast, episode 266. It is December 8th, Wednesday, getting close to the end of the year. This is the podcast where young salespeople come to up-level the craft of sales, to find a better job, to get better skills, make more money, get the President's Club, whatever it might be. We've got inspiring and educational stories for you. Uh, we're at the end of the year here, so we need everything that we can get in order to hit our goals. Um, really excited to have Jason Celine on today's podcast. Jason is the VP of Sales over at CB Insights. Um, he's a fellow member of, of Pavilion slash Revenue Collective. Um, and prior to uh, his work at CB Insights, he was in sales uh, both at Axial um, and was in the finance world for quite a bit of time. So for about the first five, six years of his career, he went uh, into finance right around like the 2009, like right after the financial crash. So he has a really interesting story about how he got into finance, realized that wasn't right for him, uh, got into sales, and then everything really uh, became a lot easier and, and a lot more successful after that. So um, for anyone that is or uh, has been in another job in transition into sales or is considering transitioning into sales, Jason is a great example of how to take that past experience. Uh, and now he sells you know, financial data, more or less, to, uh, you know, at CB Insights, been doing that for the last six years. So he's actually leveraging all of that information that he took the first part of his career to make his sales part even more successful. So um, really enjoyed this episode. I want to do a quick few quick shout outs before we get to that interview. First, um, definitely make sure that you are following me on LinkedIn. I'm Tom Alamo. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Tommy Tahoe. And please subscribe wherever you're listening to this. If it's Spotify, Apple, YouTube, uh, all of that will help you help this show grow. Uh, follow me on LinkedIn because I, I'm posting every single day about sales tips and stories and tactics uh, as well. So you can check out more of that content there. This podcast is also sponsored by Postal.io, the OG sponsors of this show. It, Postal creates a marketplace uh, for salespeople to engage with their customers and prospects. So you could send a prospect a you know $5 Starbucks gift card. You could send someone a lunch Grubhub gift card as kind of a thank you, or we're doing a power lunch during this meeting, whatever it might be. Of course, you can send gifts as a, a thank you when a deal closes. Um, or uh, you know what's even more cool is creating a, a an actual event, a curated experience for your customers. So Think about your top 10 prospects all having a virtual wine or beer tasting uh, all together uh, with a small yay or something like that. So super impressive, great way to build relationships virtually, which we're all doing right now. So I highly recommend you check out postal.io. Again, follow me on LinkedIn, subscribe to the show. Without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Jason Celine. Let's go. All right, now on the Millennial Sales Podcast, we have the VP of Sales at CB Insights, Jason Celine. Jason, how are you? Tom, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you uh, on, an, on an evening, a late evening or late-ish evening uh, in New York City. Joining me, I can see the darkness from the windows uh, behind you, so I appreciate you coming on. Of course, of course. Actually, uh, in New Jersey, recently moved from New York City, uh, but... Still a New Yorker in my heart. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Same, similar, uh, yeah, similar, similar region. Um, how's the end of quarter 
looking for? We got six weeks left. You got your timelines mapped out or what? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's fast and furious. Uh, you know, it's the mix of trying to close out what we can close, but also plan for next year. So uh, yeah. always a, a delicate balancing act, but uh, a lot of momentum right now, uh, a lot of excitement uh, and uh, yeah, feeling good about closing out the year strong. Nice. There was a, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but my colleague Devin Reed put a uh, blog today about when, what the likelihood is of someone signing a contract throughout different days throughout the holidays and just how unlikely it is for on certain days. Um, and I think we know that intuitively, but um, that definitely lit a fire under my ass. It's like, oh, wow, okay, we don't have a month and a half. We have like a, a month. You take out Thanksgiving week, we have like three weeks. Uh, and so the pressure's on, uh, but that's what we signed up for, and, and that's uh, pressure's a privilege. Yeah, we've been, uh, we've been sort of championing this December 10th mindset, right? Just oh, as, wow. of, yeah. as of November 1st, just thinking what we can do and how we can rally to make that as the date that we align on just so we do have a good buffer before Christmas. And, and for us now, actually the end of our fiscal quarter and fiscal year is January 31st. So mm. we're going to get that sort of double dip with end of the year in the calendar, then the end of the fiscal. Uh, but you know, all of our, all of our data and everything we we've seen in the past is having a big first month of the quarter just sets the stage. And if you don't do that, it's a lot harder, of course, to, mm -hmm. to hit your quarterly number and then your annual. So, uh, trying to do what we can in that first half of the, the quarter before December 10th. I love it. And, he, and my, my director's pushing December 17th. So that, that week, so you're giving yourself three weeks. Do you have any tips for, uh, for reps out there that are listening that, I guess this is applicable to any quarter trying to drive timelines, but around the holidays and, and end of year is just so, there's just so much going on. So any, any thoughts on that? Like how, how you're coaching the team to do that? Yeah, I think uh, it's, like anything, right? Like, of course we have the, the levers we could use, right. With just prices going up next year and, uh, yep. you know, discounts and that sort of thing, extra features, extra users. But I think ultimately it's just establishing two things up front, which is the business value and the strong champion. Um, you know, making sure that we have that from, from the first call and, and really being diligent on opportunities where we have that and really being honest and real with ourselves when we don't have that and, and inspecting and, trying to get that pretty quickly if we don't. And if we not, if we don't have that, then prioritizing other ops or, or finding ops when we can, because, uh, you know, that's, I think that's really where it comes down to urgency and what you can close versus what's more of a, a hope cast, as we say, or, uh, you know, not, not sort of living in reality. Yeah. That's super helpful. Um, I, I'd love to get into your story a little bit. So, uh, Michigan grad, I'm a, I'm a Michigan fan because I'm a Tom Brady fan. Uh, so for the last 20 or so years, I've been rooting for Michigan for the sole reason that Tom Brady went there. So I guess I'm on your side. Um, and you went straight from there into the finance world, right? I did. Yeah. So, uh, also happy to talk about Michigan because although we had the tough loss to Michigan state, I think we're, we're back and we're set to beat Ohio state finally in a couple of weeks. So look forward okay. to that. But Could be in the playoff. Yeah. We'll see Ch championship mindset. We'll, we'll see what happens, but yeah. So, uh, you know, grew up in, in New York and Long Island, went out to Michigan for four years, came right back essentially right after college and, and entered finance uh, for the first five years of my career. Uh, and that was really sort of all I ever wanted to do. That was uh, uh, sort of my envisioning myself for my career and uh, entered it, but I entered it in an interesting time. I graduated in 2008 and I actually graduated three months after 
Bear Stearns went under and then about four months before Lehman Brothers went under. Um, and so uh, it was definitely an interesting start and an interesting time to join that field. So coming out of college, right? Like while you're studying, um, why, like, why did you choose finance? Is that something that people in your family did? You just were drawn to numbers or maybe you didn't know what, what the hell you wanted to do. And, and that just seemed like a, a good route to take. Yeah. So no one in my family was in finance. My mom actually was in, in sales, which okay. uh, sort of led me to the, the path I'm on now. But um, I was just always into the stock market and uh, was following that from a young age and you know, started researching stocks, buying stocks, watching CNBC, um, doing all that I could to, to educate myself on that. And uh, yeah, just uh, thought that was where I wanted to build out my career and, um, you know, fast paced, exciting. And, um, yeah, just felt like that was for me. How old were you when you bought your first stock? Uh, it was probably 13 or 14 years old, I would wow. say. Um, yeah, just uh, middle school era kind of, uh, just messing around a little bit. And, uh, what was it? E trades accounts. <laughs> uh, it was actually Exxon Mobil. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's probably done pretty well in the last, like, I mean, you were 14. Not, not as well, not as well as you would think. Oh, really? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it's not okay, but not you know, not relative to tech stocks or you know anything else that's uh, that's really grown a lot in the last you know, 15, 20 years. You just figured like gas like thirteen year old <laughs> kid. You're just like, yeah, gas stations will be a thing in the future. <laughs> like that seems that seems legit enough. Yeah, yeah, I I sort of did. Uh, a deep dive into just energy and, and refineries. I was just sort of into that sector. And I thought, you know, they're the, they're the conglomerate. They had a nice dividend and uh, it was a weirdly <laughs> sort of safe, like long-term play for a, a 13 year old. But um, yeah, it, uh, I held on to it for a while. So it, it did. Okay. That's some, that's some wild thinking. I'm thinking of myself at 13 and I was <laughs> certainly not thinking about, uh, you know, conglomerates and, and dividend payouts or, uh, you know, and, and PE ratios or anything like that. So, yeah. um, that's interesting. So you're at the, you're in the finance world. you get in at, at, you know, the craziest time, you know, of our generation really, uh, to probably like, that's the weirdest year to start, uh, in that field. Uh, and you were there for a few years though. You did stick it out, um, before you switched over to sales, right? I did. Yeah. So it was about five, five and a half years. And most of that time I was at uh, a European bank called KBC. I was on their, their New York desk, but we had a European uh, equity research product. And so our clients were hedge funds, mutual funds, anybody who were trading European stocks. And then we had research and we would help execute trades uh, for people who wanted to buy and sell those stocks. And it was, it was really fun, really exciting, fast paced. A lot of, you know, it was relationship-based sale. So a lot of entertaining and uh, it was really just seeing who could spend more money with you and trade more money with you versus other people who, other banks, other brokers who uh, were, were covering these folks. Um, and it was amazing. I had a great time, but technology was changing that landscape in a, in a big way. So everything was moving to software and you didn't really need a broker to execute trades anymore. And a lot of the research ideas, uh, people were just hiring analysts and bringing them into the, the hedge funds, mutual funds, and didn't really want to pay for, for research as much anymore. And so trading costs were going down and, and margins were compressing. And it forced me to, to kind of think like, hey, is this the best area to build out my career? 
And I was surrounded by a lot of guys who were talking about the good old days and, you know, 2000s and 90s. And when you're in your mid 20s, it's like, hey, what's the future going to be like when when this is what's what the present is? Um, But it it forced me to look into technology a lot more and thinking, hey, if technology is disrupting this world, it's disrupting a lot of a lot of places, too. I'd also read uh, the Mark Andreessen post software is eating the world um, Mm -hmm. that had a big effect on me, too. So I started kind of looking around uh, in the tech world and then ultimately made a decision to go sort of full throttle uh, into SaaS. Did your your mom's sales career play a factor into that at all? Of Because uh, you, could, you, you could have done anything in technology, right? You didn't have to go into sales. I'm sure there are other entry-level roles you could have gotten. Yeah, so it, it definitely did. I, I grew up around sales, uh, as I said. And so I, I saw from a young age sort of the, the power of just working really hard and, and putting in the effort and then seeing a return from that and having a direct relationship. One thing at the bank that I didn't love very much was they had an annual bonus uh, structure, which was discretionary. And so you, you could have worked hard yourself and your team could have done okay. But if something was happening with the bank or there were some regulations or someone else in some other department had a bad year, you were impacted by that. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I like the idea of more you know, eat what you kill, put in hard work. And I, I knew that uh, that sales could offer that. I, I didn't really know all that went into it, uh, especially kind of going into to SaaS and some of the differences there. Um, but I did know that I wanted to be client facing and I wanted to uh, spend my time talking to people and, and helping them solve problems and just sort of, um, you know, sort of the, the thrill of, of the chase as well. I love that. What, what did your mom sell? Yeah, so she uh, actually started her career as a, a court reporter, which are wow. those people who type in the yeah. depositions in the, in the courtrooms. And then when she was probably 10, 15 years into her career, she moved into to selling those services. So it's litigation cool. services. And so they sell to law firms and they, anytime a lawyer has a deposition, they need the sonographers. Now they need video. Now they need these real-time feeds. So there's there's a whole tech element to that now. Um, but yeah, so she made that transition and was able to do well as a salesperson. And she's still selling today. Wow. I love it. It's so funny. I've done upwards of 260 of these podcasts and parents in sales came up probably on 10 of the first 250 and it's come up on every single one of the last four that I've done. That's really? been a major factor. So I must be some sort of weird coincidence, but, um, that I, I love the thought that people have a good uh, attitude about sales or a good reflection of it before they get into it. Because I think most of us think about it as, you know, the used car salesman or Wolf of Wall Street or whatever, you know, boiler room, which, um, you know, maybe attracts some people and, and de- you know, and, and you know, kind of like sways some people from the profession. So, um, so you get into the role, your first sales job uh, after going into finance, uh, how, like, walk me through, like, what happened? Were you, were you, calling up mom, asking for advice? Like, were you killing it early on? Like what was going on? Yeah. So when I was still at at the bank, I was on LinkedIn and I was just messing around and I I actually saw a role and the title was private capital markets sales executive. And the company was called Axial. And I started digging around because I'm like, what's Axial? Is it some boutique bank with like a tech element? What's what's going on? But the more I dug into it, it was a SaaS product and it was a a network for deal professionals, for private Mm. capital markets, deal professionals. And so I thought I can come in, be an AE, you know, hey, I've got five years experience. I've worked in finance. This should be, it should be fine. Yeah. And uh, I went in and I, well, I, I didn't get the interview right away. I applied online, 
thought, thought they would take me, no problem. You know, here's my resume, crickets for, for a few weeks. I found essentially a third connection through a friend of a friend, of a friend who worked there. Luckily, he, he didn't know me, but he wanted the referral bonus. <laughs> so he, uh, he put my resume in front of the right people and I got an interview. And actually at the time, uh, Sam Jacobs was the VP of sales. Okay. And so I met with him uh, for the first time and he ended up becoming a, a big influence and a mentor in my career. But I met with a few other folks who were there and they really explained to me like, hey, we, we, we think your background is interesting. It's not a perfect fit. And eventually they said, we'd like to give you a job, but it can't be as an AE. You have to come in as an SDR. Mm-hmm. Um, and at 27 turning 28, pretty big cut from where I was at salary wise. And I still didn't really understand why I needed to go in as an SDR versus an AE. I found out pretty quickly why later on, but I, uh, I thought, you know what, this is my chance to break in to a new field, a growing field. Uh, it seemed like an exciting company. The people seemed awesome. I was excited about the product. And at the time I, I think I was just living with my girlfriend as my, my wife now, uh, you know, wasn't engaged yet, wasn't married, didn't have kids. I'm like, my risk tolerance is, is never going to be uh, higher than it is right now. So yeah. I just sort of closed my eyes and, and made the move. That's great. And so is that where you, you worked with Charles there? Because I remember he said he worked for, for Sam Jacob as, as well. And we were talking about that a little bit. Yeah. So, so day one, I, uh, I sat down and they put me next to Charles. Charles was an AE. Um, I was his SDR. <laughs> so uh, we had a great, a great dynamic. We, uh, I learned so much from him and uh, we were very real, very honest with each other, gave each other feedback. He took my feedback as an SDR who hadn't much experience at all in, in tech. Um, I took his feedback pretty well and we, we really sort of grew together. That's great. That's a great uh, podcast for anyone listening that similar type of progression. He came from you know, a decade in, in the accounting world uh, into sales. So it's funny that you guys came at the same spot and now work at the same different company uh, over at CB Insights. Um, so how, how long did it take for you to go through the SDR kind of like trials and tribulations before you got the AE role? Yeah. So the program itself was really just being spun up. They had three or four SDRs and uh, there wasn't a set trajectory. It was really, it was really wild west. I mean, they did pair you with AEs, but um, they sort of let you run wild in terms of just being able to book demos and, um, you know, really just whatever you kind of put in from an initiative standpoint, you were rewarded. And, uh, the, I think I was able to do it in like seven or eight months, which I think nowadays is probably unheard of. It was really just because they didn't really have a set program and it was a new idea. And so, uh, I started in February and by, I want to say September or so I was able to, to become an AE um, you know, I, I wanted to become an AE sooner and I, I did everything I could to, to get there sooner. It seemed like a long time, you know, the difference between five months and seven months, but, uh, really it wasn't. And, I, and I'm glad I took the SDR route because I learned so much. Um, but it was about seven months and then I was in an AE after that. So what I think is interesting is that your, your first job that you got in finance, uh, you know, you, you've stuck in that same world. Obviously you've transitioned what you're doing and now you're a VP of sales and you kind of rose through the ranks there. But you see a lot of AEs or a lot of salespeople kind of jump from industry to industry. They might be at a company for a year or two or three and they're selling to HR, then they're selling to a CFO and then to a VP of sales and kind of all over the place. You've really stuck in this one domain um, because you've been interested in in finance you know, for such a long time. How has that helped you as a seller, um, like, is that something that you would recommend that other people maybe consider? Like, 
really try to be a domain expert um, and find great companies within that same domain. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting you said that, Tom, because uh, that's actually something that I think I, I, I it wasn't really uh, as apparent to me as you just put it and, until I really thought about it more recently because somebody else also brought that up to me. And I realized that, you know, even now at, at CB Insights, we're really selling, you know, research and information and data. And it's actually not so different than where I started my career. Totally different model, to totally different client type. But the underlying product is, is largely similar. For me, it's been helpful um, because it's something I'm interested in. It's something I've always mm -hmm. been interested in. And I think if you're interested in the product and you know those buyer types and you just want to consume you know, the information in the same way your clients do, I think that that's really helpful. I, I wouldn't say, though, that I would weigh that extremely heavily relative to just sales acumen and, and sales mm -hmm. skills. I think that sometimes uh, if someone spent their whole career in an industry, it could be very attractive to a potential company from a hiring standpoint. But I think it's you also need to make sure that person actually has the the chops and from a, just a yeah. sales standpoint or a leadership standpoint or whatever the the role is. And so I, I wouldn't over-index for it, but I think that it is helpful. Um, and I think kind of moving from Axial to CB Insights, where I went next, it was really um, beneficial for me and it allowed me to hit the ground running when I joined. So coming from a different industry and then getting into sales, I, I feel like in the first year or two of sales, people really understand two things. One is, am I cut for this? Like, can I make it as a salesperson? Then do I want to be a salesperson? Um, and I don't really think you can answer those questions unless you really try it. Um, and obviously, you passed both of those tests and you've been doing it for, for a long time and doing it well. Why do you think... That you stuck with it, like what? What about sales has been so attractive to you and and made it made you successful in it? So I think the number one thing is is competition, right? Just mm. just being very competitive. That that's when I, when I really think about it, and and maybe it's less so now being on the the leadership side, or although maybe in a different way. But as an individual contributor, whether you're an SDR or an AE or senior AE or whoever whoever whatever role you're on, like. I think that just waking up every day and uh, having sort of this um, this environment where everything's open, like the scoreboard's there, everybody can see the scoreboard. Um, it's empowering, and uh, I think that if you're the type of person who wants to win, wants to be number one, uh, and that just gets you going, I think there's no better profession than sales to do that. I I agree. Were you uh, an athlete growing up? So not uh, not on the college level, but I did play a lot of sports growing up. Yep. In, in high school, I played baseball. That was my sort of main main varsity sport. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you do sort of as an adult, and especially now uh, with ends of quarter and uh, end of year, just sort of that that team vibe. Whether you're in an office or doing it via Zoom, I think like all rallying um, around a number together. You know, individuals, yeah. you want to perform and, of course, be be the best, but to do it as a team and to uh, to cheer each other on and to wake up to close deals and to strategize new deals and to, you know, bring someone into the team. I, I Like you all, it feels like you're you're a kid again in some ways. Um, you know, stakes are much higher, of course, but I don't know of other jobs or professions where you can can feel that way. And And like you said before, it's the opposite of when you're at the at the bank or. um you know, in the financial sector and you'd have a great year, but the company has a down year, right? And there goes your bonus, 
right? Um, it's it's the opposite of that. It's like, well, if the company's doing well or not well or okay, like you're, if you hit two hundred percent to goal, like you're getting paid on your plan. You get fifty percent to goal, and the company's doing well. Well, you might not be there for the rest of that that journey. And so there's a lot of autonomy in it. Um, and I think a lot of like, you know, pressure, maybe, I don't know if that's the best way to put it. Um, I think a lot of great salespeople like the pressure or, or at least adapt to it. Um, but I think being able to handle that in a competitive atmosphere is super important. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that the other side of it, which is really important because we could talk all day about big wins and big quarters, but the best salespeople have bad quarters and have cold streaks and, you know, have a rough stretch in their career, whatever it might be. Um, but I think with early in the game, AEs or SDRs, when you hit your first rough patch, I think that's so important to kind of get through that and have the right mindset there. Because I think we've, we've all seen people who hit a rough patch and never recover, right? And then other people who use it as motivation and fuel and then kind of bounce back. And it doesn't make the the future rough patches much easier, but I think having some experience and having the faith in yourself to go through those those tough times um, allows you to to go through the next tough times in in with just a clear head. Um, and so I think I think mindset and uh, just kind of how you approach the downs is is just as important, if not more, than rallying for the highs. Do you remember any of those early rough stretches, whether it was a deal that you blew or or blew up at the end or tough months, tough quarters, maybe tough years um, that were, you know, relatively early in your career? Yeah, I think uh, when I was uh, an SDR um, at, at Axial, I had gotten off to a pretty, pretty hot start, sort of thought I, I knew what I was doing, right? Um, set a lot of demos, a lot of those deals closed, um, thought I figured it out. And then a few months in, I was just ice cold and uh, we were doing some competition and, you know, me in the the group and then the the team I was on lost and just straight up couldn't do it. And uh, it happened to be the last month of the quarter and the company ended up actually having a good a good quarter. So it's sort of the opposite of what we're talking about now. Yeah. And initially it was hard for me to celebrate the company having a good quarter because I felt terrible that I didn't yeah. do well and my team didn't do well. Um, but I had a really good a good boss and a good mentor then who kind of took me aside and was like, Kind of having the conversation we're having now just around like yeah everyone's gonna have a bad month a bad quarter it's good that you feel this way now because it shows you care it shows you're engaged but like there's a bigger picture out here and and we have to celebrate the team and you know we have to uh realize that if, it's, if the company does well even if you didn't do well right away like it's going to be beneficial for all of us and it's going to create opportunity and it's going to lift all of us up and i never for, forgot that and I've, I've tried to take that with me um just in terms of thinking about what's good for the company and, and how that benefits everybody. Cause I think with high growth companies, with startups, it is, it is important to um, not only to do well, but to, to celebrate company wins and to really just be at a winning company. Yeah. I, I feel like that's probably one of the tougher jobs of the, of the leader is trying to get, trying to take this individual game and try to create kind of like a team camaraderie and energy I've been on teams where that is the case and people are truly rooting for everyone's success. Um, and I've been on teams where it's more that zero sum mentality. And it's like, oh, if, if, if she closes a deal for some reason, that means I'm not going to close the deal or she's going to look better than I am or whatever it might be. Um, how as a leader, 
do you try to foster that type of team mentality um, where, where it's the tide is, you know, rising all boats, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I, uh, I read this once, I think it's, it was from uh, principles by Ray Dalio, but mm. he talks about how companies are the opposite of a house, right? A house, the foundations at the bottom, and then you kind of build from there. But with companies, the foundation is actually at the top. So founder, CEO, you know, VP level, director, all the way down. I think you need to have the culture set from the top and then hire the right people. And then it sort of cascades down. But more specifically, one thing we've been doing for a while now at CB Insights, and, I, and it happened very organically, uh, and it works, is that we, um, we have our end of quarter war rooms the last two weeks of the quarter, and we invite everybody to those, right? So it's, it used to be just a small group of leaders, then we started inviting AEs and SDRs, and for the past couple of years, it's been everybody. So it's an open call, and we'll go through every, every close deal, every commit deal, best case pipeline. Uh, and really just um, even have SDRs share a bit about the sourcing of the deal and um, whatever it might be. People give quotes, you know, all, all these kind of things. Um, and really just kind of have this, this company group call every day where everyone celebrated and uh, we strategized together and everyone's really recognized overall. Um, and I think that gives off the energy that we're celebrating each other. And uh, we're rooting for each other and, you know, not every deal closes, but I think it's an opportunity for everybody to be together and to, to just build the momentum as a team. Mm. And you say that's the last two weeks of the year or every quarter? Every quarter, the last two weeks. I love it. We do uh, a similar, we do the last week um, and, but not a full company. Uh, I love the idea of anyone can kind of drop in and, and, uh, and hear that. I feel like in a remote environment that, to me, that gives me energy, right? Because I miss seeing the person to the left or the right of me closing a big deal or, or hunting something. And, and that motivates me um, to, to want to close my own deal. Or, or if I could be helpful, obviously, I'd you know, happily, oh, I know, you know Jason over there. I'll give, it, you know, I'll, I'll give him a shout. But um, you know, I, to me, that just like, that's, it's not as good as being all in the same room on the sales floor, but it's like the closest thing I've seen uh, in the world of like COVID and, and remote work. Totally. Yeah. And we've been sort of doing a bit of a hybrid uh, approach where we do have some in office now and we'll just yeah. you know, zoom in from the office to everybody else um, and still try to hit the gong when, when we're in person and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is more challenging to, to create that now in a remote world, but of course you have to do all those things. And I think also with the individual team meetings, celebrating each other and you know, sharing success, uh, I think those sort of things are, are really important. You mentioned Ray Dalio's principles. I saw in one of your blogs, you mentioned Jocko Willink, who is a virtual role model uh, <laughs> of mine, a virtual mentor. Uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, we're big learners on this podcast. So I'm curious, any other books, they could be sales related, they could be business, they could be in a whole different type of genre, but any that have had a significant impact uh, on you as you, throughout your career or throughout your life? Yeah, a ton. I think right now, Actually, as a leadership team, we're reading The Qualified Sales Leader by oh, uh, John really McMahon. Good. And uh, I've read a bunch of sales books. That, that one's probably the best, I would say, that I've read. Um, really just because it's, it's just laid out right there for you. It's almost like an open book, <laughs> open book uh, you know, cheat sheet, if you will. And I just love the, the frameworks he has and um, you know, the stories he shares. I think that that one is, is so important. And I think through that, you realize too, 
the actual job of, of a sales leader. I think like it's not always intuitive going from an individual contributor to a, a sales leader. I think a lot of times you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll hop on the phone, help them close deals, try to get them promoted. Like yeah. that's my job. It's great. And that could work maybe to, to some extent, but the framework he has where it's just like, hey, your job is to recruit, develop and retain talent. It's like, how do you do it? You inspire, right? You coach and then you inspect. And if, you, if that's all you think about as a sales leader every day, you're going to be on the right track, right? In terms of where you spend your time, how you prioritize what you focus on. So from a, a sales book standpoint, I think that's that's great. And like I said, we're, we're reviewing it now and, and um, discussing it as a, as a team, which I think matters also because when you do a little book club, you you pick up on things that you might not have because other people mention it and you write you write things down and that's powerful. So trying to just squeeze that book for, for all it's worth. That's a great one. And uh, for those that aren't familiar, uh, John, I think John McMahon, right? Uh, the John only McMahon. person to ever be a CRO at five different public companies, or at least that I know of, uh, which is pretty amazing. Um, and so, yeah, he tells a lot of stories from this company that he consulted with and just kind of goes through this whole thing. But I think if you're a leader, it's great. But I think as a rep, it's great too, because it shows yeah. this is, he kind of shows what he's looking for as a great leader. Um, and talks about a lot of the pitfalls of deals that fell through. He talks about, he has this one piece towards the end about procurement, which I loved because like, you know, it's just, that's one of the hardest challenges. I feel like sometimes you, you feel like you're at the end line with a deal and then they're like, Hey, meet Jim in procurement. He's going to ring you out for another 20%. So, um, it, it's a great book. I highly recommend that one as well. Yeah. Love it. It's a great one. Um, so let's talk a little bit about management. Um, you, you talked about it can be a little bit awkward or a tough transition to go from rep to manager. And then I'm sure there's also that transition from manager to second line or third line manager. What are in each of those two scenarios, what are some pieces of advice you would give to someone that's you know trying to get to those, those next levels? Yeah, I think in terms of, of AE to manager, as an AE, results are, are super important. And, you know, I, I, I agree with the fact that it's not always the top rep who makes the best manager. However, I've not seen any bottom performing reps become a manager, right? So I think you need yeah. to have some competence in, in that role. Um, but I think you also cannot be only about results. Like you have to actually sort of do things and, and show yourself as a future leader and whether it's coaching others or, you know, doing trainings or taking on projects and, and just having the right attitude, the right mentality across the team. I think that's, that's so important because then it becomes obvious that you're the one to be tapped. Um, and so I think that's important, but I think from becoming, when, when you become a, a manager, one thing that I learned pretty quickly was that, you know, I thought I was just going to have this one approach and I was going to be really upfront and direct with everybody and set expectations. And I think that's all good. But I do think that whoever you manage, you really have to get to know them as individuals um, because people take feedback differently and people have different goals for their career, their lives. Uh, they're different people outside of the office. And, you know, you can be very upfront and very direct with somebody uh, and they'll process it and they like to get feedback that way. It's helpful. You give that same feedback to somebody else and they could be in tears. I mean, that, that, that's yeah. happened to me. <laughs> so uh, yeah. you really have to uh, get to know your team as individuals and, and care more about them, not just as people who close deals, but who, who they are outside of the office and what they're trying to do with their lives and careers. Do you feel like that's tougher to do 
I know you mentioned your hybrid, but do you feel like that's tougher to do in a remote world? Yeah, I think it's it's much harder to do in a remote world. Um, and so, I mean, as I said, we've been we've been doing some hybrid and trying to get people together when we can. Um, but I think that in a remote world, you have to be really careful with how you phrase things and uh, understand that hey, like you know, actually hopping on a a quick Zoom and, and having an actual conversation as best as you can is a you know better form of communication than just firing off slacks or texts or emails or whatever it might be. Um, and you know, doing team building things virtually when you can. I think at this point, some some folks are tired of it, but I do think there's still a place for the right ones when you can find some some fun activities together. Um, but I, I think you have to be much more intentional uh, than you might have been in in person when you just pick up on more cues uh, from a communication standpoint. And then going from first to let's just say second line leader, that feels to me like it's a, a completely different lens. You're thinking things about things much more strategically, trying to solve problems in the business, trying to, you know, probably you know, look more into the future of what the team needs and how do we get to the next level because you're not as involved in day-to-day deals and you're not, uh, you know, having all the one-on-ones with reps and things like that. Is that a fair assumption? I think that that's absolutely right. I think that one way to look at it is the job is to create the most favorable conditions for success across the team. Um, and so I think, I think of it as being sort of a conduit from the managers and the AEs to the executive team, but also cross-functionally. So to marketing and to customer success and, and rev ops. And I think you, you do that though, by really understanding what's still happening at the AE level, right? Like whether it's skip level one-on-ones, still joining a lot of calls, still doing deal reviews and just asking for honest feedback. Um, because I think that that's how you understand where the problems are and that's how you can kind of bubble it up and, and get the right resources. Um, we had, you know, a challenge recently with just account routing as an example and, and territories and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, really when you, when you dug into it, the AEs had a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, points there. And, and I think that, uh, it was very easy then to show, you know, the executive team and, and, and rev ops, like, Hey, we need to prioritize this this routing and this account scoring to get folks better accounts to sell into, and it's going to benefit them. It's going to benefit the company. And so, um, you know, I think being that bridge is, is really important. And then kind of following up and seeing how it's going, what else can we work on? And, you know, just knowing that like ne- nothing's ever always perfect, right? There's always something to work on. And I think that, uh, you know, you need to just kind of keep a close ear and, and get people to be honest with you. Hmm. You mentioned in, in some of the, pre-recording uh just some of the idea flow like the topics of uh relationships and and fitness and uh family and things like that i'm curious how do you integrate some of those other aspects uh while also being a top performing salesperson and sales leader Uh, i think that's something that everyone probably struggles with to some degree um and has their own kind of formula so curious how you arrange things yeah so I actually think that the the pandemic um, changed things for the better there for me. Uh, you know, not that not that things were in, in disarray before that, but uh, I think that um, you know the the pandemic. I don't know it, it having more time. I think at home, you know, with family, but also uh, being able to exercise a bit more and kind of cutting down on the commute and things like that. I think that uh, that has allowed me to um, just better understand like how to how to order things in in life and i think that 
you have more time than you think you did, right? I think like mm. thinking of, oh, well, um, I have to do this after that, like work-wise, like when you can prioritize other things like like fitness and family, like you're you're going to be better at your job, right? And so it's it doesn't mean that um, that the job and and the work is you know not going to get the attention it deserves. I think that you actually find you find more hours when you have a positive habit that you've developed. So mm -hmm. you know I, I probably never would have thought that I would have like exercised at eight o'clock at night, right? Or or woken up early to to do something like that. Um, but when it gives you fuel to do other things, you 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 just literally create more hours by doing that. Um, and I think you know also just being around your family more uh, keeps you more balanced at work as well because you something happens that you think is the biggest deal and is such a catastrophe, you still might feel that for a second, and then you know your your kid runs in and gives you a hug or something like that. You're like okay, well, <laughs> you know let let let's think about uh, what matters and and this thing isn't really a big deal because I get an opportunity to to be a dad to somebody, right? So I think that, um, that in some ways the pandemic has been really helpful for those things. Yeah, yeah, and I, I definitely agree with you on on time as well. It's kind of like Parkinson's law, right? If you feel like, you know, you're gonna get all this done in 10 hours, right? Then you can get it all done in 10 hours. If you feel like, hey, maybe, uh, you know, I'm gonna stretch this and like, you know, I'm gonna try to squeeze in a workout or I'm gonna do a quick, you know, like family session or whatever it might be, I, I, I feel like, it's weird, but sometimes the more that you try to do, the more like you can actually do. And and when you're doing less, it's like everything's taking longer because that's how much time you've given it. Um, so I don't really yeah, know like how I say, how, uh, how to describe that better. If, if if you want something done, give it to a busy person. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I I completely agree. Um, all right, I want to hit you, Jason, with a couple uh, rapid fire questions before we let you get on with your evening. Um, okay, first. What's bumping in the Jason, Celine, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you listen to wherever you listen to music, what's uh what's going on there? So uh my kids are really into Dua Lipa. So uh Okay. Been, been bumping her stuff. But for me personally, like I I find myself going back to either uh like old school hip hop stuff, like uh Biggie Ready to Die has been okay. been a big one for me recently. Um, but then also getting to sort of the the eighties mood every now and then with uh Billy Joel, you know, uh, Journey, people like that. Doesn't get more uh, New York than Biggie Smalls and Billy Joel. I mean, <laughs> <True>. come on. <laughs> True. I exclusively listen a, to New York, New York artists. So that's a hell of a combo. Um, okay, uh, favorite podcast to check out doesn't have to be sales related, but it can yeah, be. yeah. So um, I, I I like a lot of different podcasts, but um, I've been. Listening to um, Josh Brown recently, uh, he has a podcast. I think it's called The Compound and Friends. He calls himself the, the Reform Broker, but he's uh, yeah. he's awesome. And there's a lot of good stuff, you know, just investing, personal finance, that sort of thing. He's hilarious. He's on CNBC a lot. He has good guests, but he's uh, he's always a great listen. Downtown Josh Brown, That's if right. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, he's a good. Uh, he's a, a funny. I follow him on Instagram too, uh, so he's pretty good there too. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyone that you would recommend folks, I don't know if you're, you're into the, like the LinkedIn, if you, if you follow anyone on LinkedIn that is in the sales world or, um, any other type of content, blogs, YouTube, anything else that is sales related that you check out to kind of stay on your game? Yeah. So we're, we're big fans of Josh Braun. I think like everything, yeah. everything he posts is, is amazing. Uh, we, we review a lot of that and sort of coach around that. I think it's always, 
it's always spot on. Um, you know, I think uh, John Barrows also, he's sort of the, mm. the OG sales sales leader. Uh, he actually did a training at Axial, I think like right before I got there. So I just, I just missed out on his training, uh, but he's, he's awesome. He's been doing it for so long and uh, he keeps evolving his game. And uh, it's just awesome to see how he's developed over the years. He's, he's the goat of sales trainers, in my opinion. I do like Josh Braun's content as well. Those are two very solid picks. Um, all right, you mentioned personal finance before. This is not a usual rapid fire question, but we're going to throw it your way because you got a lot of experience here. Get, we're hungry millennials. We're trying to get to the next level. Jason, what's what's a stock pick? What's a, what's like a hot tip on Wall Street that you can give to the millennial sales uh, audience? If that's so a legal be, question. Yeah, it's going to be super super boring. And I'll, I'll pair this with a book called uh, The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, mm. um, which really is just like your behavior matters way more than any returns or stock picks you have. Meaning that if you could just consistently save, put away 10, 20, 30% of your earnings every year and don't touch it for 30, 40, 50 years, you're going to have seven figures, maybe eight figures by the time you're 60 or 70. So really like low cost index funds, super boring, like not, not sexy, not exciting, but most of those actually beat the market. Like just the SPY index, um, done really well over the years. And so, uh, just do that. And, you know, you can set aside a little fun money for, for crypto or, or, you know, meme stocks, whatever to, to scratch that itch, but majority should just be low cost index funds. Don't touch it. Just do an automatic invest out of your paycheck, 401k or, or, you know, wealth front, whatever it might be, and just don't touch it. And you wake up one day, 60, 65, 70, and you'll be okay. Uh, I love, I love that. We talked about this, that book on this podcast before, and I'll tell you a quick story that my dad is in, uh, the finance world. Uh, at, he's a CFO. We have like a family business. And so he taught me about stock stuff and mutual funds and stuff, you know, relatively early. Um, and I gave that book, I read the psychology of money. It's probably my favorite finance book. And I gave it to my fiance, um, who is interested, but, but is, is maybe just starting to kind of get into that world. And there's one day that she read the compound interest chapter and almost lost her mind. Like she, she, she would talk about it for like two weeks. Like, Every time I would say, I'd be like, hey, where do you want to go to dinner? She'd be like, did you know that if you invest this much now in 30 years? Of and so it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. I love that book. Um, I, I would, that would be the number one finance book I'd recommend to a young person. Maybe anyone. Yeah, it's, it's really crazy how we learn trigonometry and, and uh, physics and all these things, but we don't learn about compound interest in, in high school. I mean, maybe some people do now, but... It's actually something that we, we can't wrap our heads around just as humans, unless you actually study it and see it and understand it. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett talks about compound interest and stuff a lot too. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not something that's super intuitive until you start learning about it. And you just have to have patience. And that's where the behavior comes into play. Absolutely. My last question for you here, Jason, before we let you get off to where, whatever else you're doing tonight, um, who would you like to see on the millennial sales podcast that, you know, Oof. so many people. Um, so there's someone, uh, who I've worked closely with, uh, her name is Lydia Rahel. Um, she's been the top performing AE at CB insights for three or four or five years now. She was an SDR 
when I started, um, and she's been been jumping on the podcast circuit as of late. She's she's been on a couple. Okay. She was on on Jeremy Donovan's pod and uh, uh, another one earlier, and um, she's just an incredible talent. And uh, she's actually going to be moving over to to leadership. She's going to be managing a team um, starting February. So I think uh, she'd be a great pick. That sounds like the type of person I'd like to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Lydia, you're on the hot seat. Um, Jason, anything that we didn't get to before we head off? Um, no, I mean, I, I would just say one thing we didn't really kind of touch upon, but uh, I think about more, you know, especially as we were kind of talking about this, Tom, I think just the, the importance and the value of great bosses and, and mentors. I think that, uh, you know, as I, as I look back on my career, I think the common thread is that I've just been so fortunate to have amazing bosses and, and mentors. Um, you know, I mentioned Sam Jacobs and uh, I also worked under Mark Jacobs at, at CB Insights for a while. Um, my boss now, Derek Rieg, is, is incredible. So uh, yeah, I think that um, there's something in the, the James Clear newsletter recently, which is like the biggest shortcut ever is to find an expert in a field and like apprentice under them. Um, and I think that that's, that's such great advice. And so I, I would encourage everybody to not only look at a company, but look at who your boss is going to be and, and try to learn as much as you can about them because uh, that, you know, that definitely can be your ticket. That's outstanding advice and a great way to, uh, to close this off. Um, Jason, real quick, what's the, uh, what's the best place if folks want to connect with you to learn more, chat with you They're Maybe they're interested in CB insights. Um, what would be the best place? LinkedIn? LinkedIn for sure. And we are hiring in a big way for Woo. pretty much every role. So uh, yeah, we can talk on LinkedIn. Hit him up, people. Uh, Jason, I appreciate you coming on, man. This is great. Cool. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for checking out that episode of the Millennial Sales Podcast. We're in the home stretch, November and December of 2021. Let's close this on a strong note. Please make sure you're subscribed wherever you're listening here. It'll help me grow this show and provide better content for you. Otherwise, hit me up on LinkedIn, Tom Alamo. I'll see you there. Peace.